Amen. Please be seated and turn with me to the third chapter of the book of Acts. At this point in the book of Acts, the coming of the Spirit and the beginning of the gospel preaching of the apostles was really a limited affair. It was to a smaller group there gathered. Now, in this episode before us, it opens up, still focused on the Jewish people, but now into the temple area, in the outer court, the colonnade, Solomon's porch, as it's called. Many more people are now here to hear what has, there to hear what is being spoken by the apostles. This story before us has to be taken on the whole. It's one big episode, and it's an exciting story. It's an exhilarating story. Um, and it's here for several reasons. Uh, first, it shows Christ's ongoing ministry through the apostles. They're his proxy, if you will. Um, the work Jesus does through the apostles publicly shows that they really are apostles, to be listened to on their teaching that would be inscripturated for the generations after, uh, authenticated by what happens here. But also, this miracle and sermon begins the persecution of the church. In the 2,000 years of the post-resurrection church, um, we have enjoyed about 60 days with no persecution. That was Acts 1 and 2. Then starting Acts 3 with this sermon, this miracle, the persecution begins with the Sanhedrin in chapter 4 coming down upon the Christians. The story is also there uh, as a bit of a metaphor. It's a real story of the real person, but this person, this man's lameness and his need for the mercy of God to set him free from his paralysis is a picture for all of us for sure. But also the picture that we get in this story is the same one Jesus depicts as he preaches. He does works of mercy that are then coupled with the declaration of the gospel. The works of mercy are not the gospel, but they set the stage for the preaching of the gospel, the declaration of God's forgiveness of sins through the blood of Christ. Um, Mercy towards hurting people sets up a platform to express how their sins may be forgiven for eternity. A temporal issue done away with temporarily so they can breathe long enough to hear the message of eternal life. This pattern is set by Jesus, and it's followed now by Peter and John and the apostles. Here, as I read God's inspired and inerrant word, Acts chapter 3. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple, asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people utterly astounded 
ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw, saw it, he addressed the people. Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. Let's pray. Lord, it is exciting to read this account. It is exhilarating to see how you launched the church in the first century. Please send your spirit to help us understand the message of your word and how to apply what we learn in our day and our age. Please give us a sense of the timelessness of your providential hand. Please inspire us to love and to obedience and to compassion and to faithful declaration of your message of the gospel. May we long to see all the families of the earth be blessed. Pray this in Christ. Amen. Earlier in Acts chapter 2, Luke says that many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. This is the record of one of those wonders and signs. Why do you suppose this one was recorded? There are probably several reasons I already alluded to, but are worth re-mentioning. It shows the continuing active ministry of Christ after he ascends to heaven, sends his spirit, empowers his apostles to do these amazing things, and then after his apostles, those who would believe because of the apostles' witness, uh, Jesus would work through them, the church, to express the compassion of God, and the declaration of his mercy through Christ for eternal life. 
It displays in the immediate sense the apostles' authority as prophets of God to relay God's revelation that we need, we must have in order to understand how to be rightly related with him. The particular miracle and sermon is recorded also because it leads to the first major persecution of the church that we find in chapter 4. We can certainly relate with the lame man's paralysis spiritually and appreciate how it needs the complete grace of God for healing. But finally, in the point that I want to focus on in our time together, this episode gives us yet another picture, just like the pictures Jesus painted, of how the ministry of mercy relates to the message of gospel declaration, how it paves the way to be able to preach the gospel. It's true, you can preach the gospel, declare the message of how to be right with God through Christ in any venue, any circumstance. But when mercy is applied to hurting people especially, there's a door that opens up by God's providence for that declaration to have more impact or more effectiveness. We see it time and time again in the ministry of Jesus, and we see it with the apostles who are doing it in Jesus' place. I was in Colorado for a couple of weeks teaching in a seminary, and I spent one of the weekends uh, in Colorado Springs visiting Mark Dunn, one of our former deacons. Um, he was instrumental in the building process, part of the team that put that together, and also the development of Heritage Christian Academy. He now lives in Colorado Springs. His family's from there. That's why they moved back there. And he's involved in several ministries. And he is heavily involved with a very interesting ministry that when he first told me about it, I admit it, it kind of scared me a little bit. Um, he basically is ministering to refugees from Syria, Muslim refugees from Syria. He's doing so through the ministry of a man named Mohammed Yamut. This man um, was a Muslim as a young man, came to Christ. Now it is an evangelical pastor in Lebanon. He's Lebanese. He sets up ministry through the refugee camps. The Muslims fleeing the war, the terrible war, like the worst place you want to be in the earth right now among There are several, but Syria is bad. And so these Muslim refugees come out. They go in and they provide for them food, water, shelter, things they need. And at the same time, they are able to declare the message of the gospel openly. Now, my response was, aren't they hostile to this? I mean, they're Muslims. I mean, you know, the picture we get is that they they hate us. They, They don't want to hear anything from us. And Mark said, I feel safer there in those refugee camps than I do in most cities in America. There, we just show them mercy, and they're more than open to hear the message of the gospel, and they're able to give it to them. The reason is, their countrymen aren't showing them compassion. Muslims aren't going in and showing them compassion. Christians are going in and giving them what they need on the temporary level. They know it's temporary, but that says something to them, and they listen to the message of the gospel proclaimed. The practice of mercy, and we see it in this story, gives opportunity for a clear declaration of the gospel. And you see the declaration Peter gives. It is not beating around the bush. It meets the needs of a man everyone knew who was lame from birth. Everyone felt for this guy. They felt it themselves. And now they listen to what is being preached as a result of this mercy shown. The practice of mercy sets up the preaching in this passage. Look at how it falls out, starting at verse 1. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. Now remember, the early Christians were Jewish. They had a regular practice already of going to the temple when they were in Jerusalem to pray. There were times of prayer, appointed prayer. They were simply doing this. After Jesus came and rose again, 
uh, many of the Jews felt Jesus was the fulfillment of their being Jewish. And so they kept going to the temple and praying through Christ now. And so there was lots of mixture happening. The Jewish leaders who didn't want this transfer, this completion of the scriptures, the way that the Christians were saying it had happened. And so there was some tension there, and they're, they're in this place praying. And as they're going, in the ninth hour, verse 2, a man lame from birth was, be, was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the Beautiful Gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. So this man, for all of his life, which we find out later in the next chapter, he's 40 years old, his whole life. He's been unable to walk. And so family members and friends would drop him off in this place knowing this would be the most likely opportunity for him to get money so he could sustain himself. This was his life. This is what he did. That was his routine. It says that he was at the beautiful gate. Most scholars like John Stott identify this as the Nicanor Gate, which was the main eastern entrance to the temple precincts from the court of the Gentiles. The beautiful gate is a reference to the ornate um, carvings that were done around the outside of that entranceway. The man was lame from birth. Verse 3, seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms or donations. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. Now, how many days had this beggar sat at this spot? He probably was sitting there when Jesus had gone through before not able by God's providence to get his attention or other apostles' attention. Here in this day, God appoints something different to happen, and Peter and John lock eyes. Now, if you've ever been to a big city where there is a homeless population and you see beggars asking, I know this was true when I was in Chicago, um, it was very uncomfortable. It started out where I thought I'd donate to everybody I could, but as a college student, that ran out quick. And then as I'm walking through the streets, I, di- I didn't even want to make eye contact because I felt so sorry for them, sorry for me in the state of not being able to help them, sorry for them and the shame they must have ha- felt to have to go out and beg like this. And there's this sense, you know the beggar's there, and, and you know what I'm talking about if you've been to a place like this. You, just, you don't want to make eye contact. You just walk through. It's just the whole weight of the situation not about whose fault it is. It just doesn't feel right. It feels wrong that it's this way. And this man lives like this, where people won't make eye contact with him. But here in this case, Peter, in verse 4, directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. He had to think, who says that to me? Certainly, these guys are going to give me some money. If I could just make eye contact, they'll feel for me a little. Verse 5. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. He wants to make clear it is Jesus Christ who is performing this act of mercy towards you, for you. Remember, when Jesus did miracles, he never said, in the name of God, rise up and walk, because Jesus is God. But the apostles are careful to say, it's in the name of Jesus Christ, rise up and walk. I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Verse 7, and he took him by the right hand and raised him up. The guy's been lame for his whole life. He can't imagine how it is to even put his feet underneath him and put weight on them. And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. You can imagine um, Luke being a physician describing it in these ways. That's what would have needed to happen. His ankles and his feet would have to be strengthened in a way they'd never felt strength before. 
Immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And, of course, what would you do? Leaping up, he stood and began to walk. And this is a beautiful picture. He enters the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. What a scene. The apostles had no money, but they had Christ and his mercy. Now, in this case, by God's providence, he gives them this ability to heal him. But mercy is mercy. It would have been merciful to give him some money, but even more merciful to treat his condition. The point is, he sees the, man hurt, his, the man's hurts, and he addresses them. And the ability they're given, this apostolic ability, is to heal him. And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. What a display, especially when he jumps up. Everybody would have known this guy. And he'd been there for so long, and he just jumps up, that's going to catch everybody's gaze. He enters the temple with them, still holding, it seems, Peter and John, and yet he's jumping and he's leaping as he goes in. Messiah had come, and Messiah was still working through the apostles and among the people. Certainly, you have to expect that somebody in the temple also sat through a two-and-a-half-year series on Isaiah and knew what was happening. Let me remind you, even though I know it's fresh, Isaiah 35, forecasting the coming of Messiah. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Isaiah 35, 5. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. Verse 8 of our text again. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. Verse 9. All the people saw him walking and praising God. I mean, there's no denial what they're seeing here. They know this man. This isn't a World Cup soccer player who goes down and you know he's going to get back up. This is a man from birth, could not walk and they see him leaping, and there's no way they can't acknowledge what is before them. Verse 10, and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple, asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had had happened to him. So the man here, verse 11, is still clinging to Peter and John. He's still having trouble believing he's doing what he's doing. He's walking now. While he clung to Peter and John, verse 11, All the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. Now he's in this more public area of the temple temple courts. A large portico where people would assemble and they would see. Let's see carefully here in this first half of the episode that we're reading. The apostles did not ignore the man's physical suffering. The apostles didn't have money to give. The apostles gave what they had, which was the power of Christ, in this case, to heal. But recognize why they did what they did. The relief of anything physical is going to be temporary, but they recognize that that's real for people because God made you and I body and soul. And that, that's how our existence will be for eternity. Only a brief time will they be separated. And so it matters what happens to our body. It impacts what happens to our soul. Um, the gateway to our soul many times, by God's providence, is through what happens with our body. 
And if we're suffering physically, sometimes we cannot see the eternal because we're so bound in the temporary and the pain of it uh, that we can't look up and see what we need to see. The apostles, knowing this and what it would launch, what it would pave the way for, meet him with mercy. It's a temporary mercy. This guy would have gotten old again and maybe became lame again or he would have died. It's not like it solved his eternal problem. But this relief of physical suffering helped pave the way for the gospel. Let me say clearly, the relief of physical suffering, uh, ministering to people in this way, that's not the gospel. But it paves the way to declare the gospel. And this is why they work so beautifully together and acknowledge the, the whole of the person, body and soul. And when a person's hurting in body in some way, shape, or form, it's difficult to hear the message their soul needs. Verse 9, it doesn't stop with just the man who had the mercy shown to him. It's people recognizing the mercy shown. They see what happens. And all the people, verse 9, saw him walking and praising God and recognizing him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. They were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to them. They're ready to hear. Now, they don't know what's coming, sermon-wise, but they're ready to hear whatever these two guys have to say. And this paves the way or sets up the preaching of the gospel. Now, verse 12. When Peter saw it, he addressed the people. What did he see? He saw what God did in raising this man, and he saw the attention, how astounded everyone was. Peter saw it. Now, this is not the same Peter who, when standing out trying to warm his hands, was scared of a servant girl recognizing. This is not the same Peter any longer. This is a Peter who preaches the first model Christ-centered sermon in the opening of Acts. Now his second sermon. If it weren't bad enough what he said back then about the Jews killing them, He's now going to go to the temple and say the same thing a little more intensely. Now the stage is set. He has the way paved, and he's going to bring the message. Men of Israel, verse 12, why do you wonder at this, this act, this miracle? Or why do you stare at us, Peter and John, as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? He's got their attention. Oh, wait a minute. They didn't do this? Who are they saying did this? Well, he's about to tell them. Verse 13. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac. Oh, they all know who he's talking about. The God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, men of Israel, glorified his servant, Jesus, whom you delivered and denied in the presence of Pilate, even though Pilate had determined to release him. We don't know that from the gospel accounts. Luke fills us in now. Pilate was going to release Jesus, but it was the cry of the Jews who said, crucify him, give us Barabbas instead, that changed it, humanly speaking. We know the sovereignty of God behind these things. They're prophesied long before, but on the human level, where people are guilty, we see it. And notice carefully what's said in verse 13. And once again, the people would have been familiar with Isaiah as you are, the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and our fathers glorified, see the, what qualifies Jesus? Servant Jesus. You catch that? Who's God's servant? Isaiah 42, behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Isaiah 49, he says, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to Bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light to the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Now back to our text, verse 13. 
the God of our fathers glorified his servant, Jesus. He's the Messiah. He's the anointed one foretold by Isaiah in chapter 52. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. And many were astonished at you. His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see and that which they have not heard they now understand. That's the servant. This, his servant whom you delivered and denied in the presence of Pilate. It's that Jesus who did this miracle. Now listen. Oh, they were listening. Verse 14. Doesn't stop there in case they didn't quite understand. You denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. Now, let me pause. He's talking to the Jews, and they were very personally complicit in this. But if you're here and you have not trusted Christ, then you're rejecting that one. You're denying the holy and the righteous one. Make no mistake, that's where you are if you do not trust in Christ. So we could say, yes, he's pointing out the Jews, but he's pointing out us when we don't receive Christ, when we don't rest in Christ, when we think we can do something to be right with Christ or God on our own. That's denying the Holy One because he came so you can know Christ, so you can know God. But you denied the Holy and Righteous One and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead, To this we are witnesses. We all know it's true. We all saw it happen. You know what happened with Jesus. And we're saying it's Jesus who raised this man up. This man you know has been lame for 40 years. Verse 16, and his name, talking about Christ, the holy and the righteous one, and his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your rulers. He lets off the gas a little to let them think the Holy Spirit works. John Stott captures this moment in his commentary, saying, The most remarkable feature of Peter's second sermon, as of his first, is its Christ-centeredness. He directed the crowd's attention away from both the healed cripple and the apostles to the christ whom men disowned by killing him, but God vindicated by raising him, and whose name, having been appropriated by faith, was strong enough to heal the man completely. By in his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you now see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. Scholars debate whose faith in particular, the, the, the lame man or the apostles. The faith of the apostles seems more likely, but the man could have seen Christ, could have understood, and God gives faith anyways, and now it's the instrument that God uses to actuate the declaration that the apostles give by God's will, and the man rises and walks. The point is, Christ is the one who healed. The further point, Christ is the one in whom all should believe. Peter confronts them with their guilt in Jesus' death as a way to bring about What comes next? Verse 17, And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But now, on this side of the resurrection, we have an opportunity 
to acknowledge what Scripture says about Jesus. Verse 18. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets. This is a wonderful um, culmination or summary of the Bible. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. The Bible is about Christ. The Bible is about his redemption for us. It's ultimately to bring glory to God, but it's the story of how God redeemed a people to himself through Christ. And that's what the prophet's unified message was. Peter says to the Jewish people who were familiar with the scriptures, the Bible is about the Christ you killed, the Christ who just raised this man from his feet, from his, from his being lame. What should you do in light of this fresh, fresh revelation about Christ that you have heard again? Verse 19, repent. Repent. Turn. Turn from your sin and turn from yourself and turn to the only one who could save you. Turn to Christ. That message will never get old. All this buildup, repent. Repent, therefore, verse 19, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, the only place it can come from, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Again, the Bible's about Christ. And if you forgot, Peter reminds them, and he reminds us, Moses said, remember Moses? The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him and proclaimed these days, these days they were living in, You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your father, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. What a glorious sermon by Peter. Why do we preachers try to get fancy This is the message in some way, shape, or there's different ways to explain it, but it's so vivid, it's so Christ-centered, it's so clear. And he used the healing of a man, the, the ministry of mercy towards someone who was struggling under the results of the fall, like everyone knows in some fashion. And he used that hand of compassion to set up the declaration of the message of eternal life. The practice of mercy gives opportunity for the preaching of the gospel, and this works often just this way. He shows them from Scripture that Jesus, that the Jesus that they were complicit in killing was the one who did the miracle that they just saw. He points them to Jesus' role as Savior and calls them to repent and believe on him. He ties the whole episode to the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. This was meant that through the Jews, 
the message of the gospel would be clearly displayed and declared so that all the people of earth would be able to hear this and trust in Christ. Verse 26, 25. And in your offspring shall all the families of earth be blessed. Stott, who I referred to earlier, said wisely, looking back over Peter's colonnade sermon, that's what he calls this, it's striking that he presents Christ to the crowd according to the Scriptures as success, successively the suffering servant, the Moses-like prophet, the Davidic king, and the seed of Abraham. So this story in chapter 3, it's exhilarating. It displays the ongoing active dynamic ministry of Christ after his resurrection, seated at the right hand of the Father, in this time frame working through the apostles, in our time frame working through the church. The story is empowering because it conveys how Christ does work dynamically and actively today. The story is enlightening because it shows how persecution will also often follow movements of the Spirit as we see coming in chapter 4. It also is very informative, and I've challenged you with this thought a bit as I have preached. It matches the basic approach that we witness with Jesus when he, he meets physical needs of people, whether it be hunger, whether it be sickness, whether it be death, bereavement. Jesus meets those things as a way to then speak to eternal things. You know, there's a debate that happens between Christians because people get imbalanced about this, whether to meet the physical needs. Does that count as gospel ministry? Um, You've got to preach the gospel. Listen, let's just do both, but we need to be faithful to declare the message of the gospel at some point. It, that needs to be in the plan. It just may take a while to meet certain needs, but we are aiming towards being able to declare the message of the gospel. That's how gospel ministry often works. If it's within our ability... Let's try to do both, that is, meet physical needs, but declare the message of the gospel. Because the practice of mercy gives opportunity for the preaching of the gospel so often. I was just thinking tonight, Woody and Mary are going to share about the mission trip that you support, we support. They go to Moldova every other year. What do they do? They meet many mercy ministry needs, and you can be sure that they declare the gospel. We send teams to the Omaha Nation. It's a tough ministry. Our whole goal is by sharing, extending a hand of mercy in various ways to people who are hurting, that it gives us a platform in the VBS venue, one-on-one, to share the message of Christ. It also hopefully helps open the platform for the church that's planted there, and it preaches the message of the gospel that more people will come to it to hear that message. In fact, some of the missionaries we support right now are doing a ministry similar to what Mark Dunn is doing through Pastor Yamut's ministry in Lebanon. They're doing it in Bangladesh right now. Many, many refugees coming to Bangladesh. Many Christians there extending a hand of compassion, mercy, and proclaiming the message, the gospel message itself. This is how it works personally. I discovered this a bit in my own life. Many of my friends from high school know I'm a pastor now, and we keep up our relationship, but it's hard. It's like as soon as I start talking religiously, they shut off. And so it's difficult sometimes because I guess they expect me to preach to some degree to them. So I try to maintain these relationships. I love these people. Um, And there's a friend of mine who the last 10 years we've interacted quite a bit. We'll text each other from time to time, um, interact on social media. He's called me before. I saw him at our uh, our last reunion not too long ago. 
His son recently, and I, by the way, I've preached the gospel to him many times, expressed to him. He went to the same Catholic church I grew up in. Um, so he's a bit inoculated to certain kind of lingo that you use. And so I've made it clear to him what the gospel is, but he doesn't seem to be too interested. A, a little over a year ago, his son, it was on national news, his son was one of several Marines who were in a terrible explosion that happened in an armor vehicle. Half of the Marines died. Several of them were severely burned. His son was one of the severely burned ones. And he was in a burn unit, and he was putting pictures on Facebook, and he had a GoFundMe campaign, or someone set it up to help with the expenses of them traveling to see their son. And so I put 100 bucks in anonymously, because you could say anonymous on there, and I did that, thinking he wouldn't know. But they find out. doesn't say it publicly, but he knew. In the day after he called me, it was almost like he was in tears. I don't know for sure, but he was so moved that I would give him some money to help with his son. And I was thinking to myself, I was kind of embarrassed by the whole thing. I mean, I only gave him 100 bucks. I mean, they had lots of bills and felt a little bad about that. And then as he started talking, I could tell he was keeping the discussion up. And I thought, man, he's asking more. Than, or it's more to say thanks. And so I started to express to him again the gospel. And I tried to give him some ideas of places he'd go to learn more about what the gospel is. He said he believed what I said. A lot of Catholics will say that. I mean, I said that too before I really understood it. But this was more open than I'd ever heard him. What's the difference? There was an opportunity to share in his pain that any one of us could experience because we're human beings and all will have some of it. And to show a little bit of compassion, I couldn't take it away from him. But there's some connect that happens there that God opens up and now the message of eternal life can be given. And that's so often how God brings people to faith. That's what we have as Christians. We don't have to have gold and silver. We have Christ. We can minister in his name in many ways, in all sorts of ways. All of us can do it. I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. There's a legend about an interchange between Thomas Aquinas and the Pope. He was a bit of an advisor to the Pope in his era. The papacy was at its height in the 13th century. The story goes that entering the presence of the Pope, there was a large sum of money spread before the Pope, and the Pope observed You see, the church is no longer in that age in which she said, silver and gold have I none. Aquinas replied, true, Holy Father, neither can she any longer say to the lame, rise up and walk. May we never forget what the church has to give to the world is far greater than any earthly treasure. We are stewards of the message of the gospel We have Christ to give to the world, and there may be no greater way to open the door to giving that declaration than to meet people where they are in mercy, because the ultimate mercy is found in eternity through the sacrifice of Christ applied to us by faith in him. This episode gives us another picture of how the ministry of mercy relates to the ministry of gospel declaration. Let us pray. Father, give us boldness Boldness like the apostles to meet people where they are, in the midst of their physical needs and troubles, but not leave them there. Grant by your grace that we may lead people to Christ the way that Peter and John did here. Give us compassion for those who are hurting and are in pain. Give us ways to relieve that pain if possible, but most importantly, to lovingly declare to them the gospel of our Lord Jesus and Jesus We know that you are working dynamically in the world by the ministry of your Holy Spirit through your people. Please give us faithfulness, give us opportunity, give us boldness, give us effectiveness for your name's sake. 
Please continue to add to your church those who trust in Christ and are saved. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.